I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we begin, I want to let you know that we're talking about mental health and suicide in this episode. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis or just need to talk to someone, we encourage you to reach out to talksuicide.ca. We'll include other resources in the show notes. There is already a very obvious shortage of therapists and clinicians in the world. And that number drops significantly when you talk about clinicians that are culturally competent. Canada's healthcare system should provide equal access to everyone. But in reality, it's a system of haves and have-nots. I'm talking to the people who have experienced these inequities firsthand and those who are working to create change. There's gaps in the ways that we use AI and the field needs to develop a lot more until we can feel like this is something that we can use all the time in different ways. But just knowing that it's a tool right now that can help us, I think is the best way to look at it. There's a major conversation going on in healthcare right now about how artificial intelligence could change almost every aspect of health service delivery. In this episode, we'll talk about what the introduction of AI means for the field of mental health and how it could amplify existing inequities if we're not careful. I'm Dr. Alika Lafontaine, an anesthesiologist and the first Indigenous physician to have led the Canadian Medical Association. From the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, this is the Healthcare Divide. Easy. So, do you want to talk to Maya? <laughs> yes. Do you want to click the start button? Sure. So, I'm going to click start here. Let's see what Maya has to say. Let's do your daily check in. There is no right or wrong answer. I am here to help you. Explain. Maya is the name of an avatar in a wellness app called Mind Easy. Me and my producer Haley sat down together to check out the app. How are you feeling today? I'm given a few different options. Sad, stressed, happy, calm, anger. You know, I'm feeling pretty calm today, so I'm going to click the calm button. We'll see that where that where that takes me. Feeling calm and being in a state of relaxation may not be the easiest emotions to come by, so it is nice to take the time to fully enjoy this feeling. Let us dive through how it feels to be calm. Though her voice has that robotic, algorithmic quality to it, the video looks human. Maya is a black woman dressed in a suit, standing in front of a simple background. She is just one of many avatars in this app. If you switch to a lesson in Arabic, for example, the avatar changes. Now she has a different skin tone and her mannerisms have changed. The avatars deliver lessons in topics like standing up to your inner critic, coping with miscarriage and challenging procrastination. I click on that last one. Are you afraid of failure? Are you trying to be perfect? 
Once you identify the root cause, you can start to work on overcoming it. Remember, you're not lazy, you're just human. We all have moments That's a of pretty good affirmation, actually. The key is to not let Remember, it you're not your lazy, life. you're just human. Hmm. Has there been anything that you've been procrastinating recently? You know, there, there's a variety of different tasks that <laughs> I've been procrastinating recently. I, I usually clean the garage at the beginning of summer. It's been about four weeks, so. We recorded this in the summer. I still haven't cleaned my garage. I'm going to click finish. Oh, and now I've just started my one-day streak. The reason we're trying out this app is to explore the question of how artificial intelligence is changing the field of mental health. One of the long-standing concerns with AI is that it amplifies bias against marginalized people. Biases? And what happens when artificial intelligence goes wrong? Ahmad allegedly committed suicide after interacting with an AI chatbot. AI systems are notoriously biased along lines of race, class, gender, and ability. While mitigating bias in AI systems... Algorithms are only as good as the data you train them on. And studies have repeatedly proven that medical research falls short when it comes to representing marginalized communities. I think, uh, you know, some of what we're learning about the potentials of AI is exhilarating. And I think, you know, we have AI working right now with healthcare diagnostics to assist doctors in diagnosing diseases like cancer, enabling early detection and improved treatment outcomes. We have disease. It is going to transform just about every way of our lives and how we interact with. On the other hand, AI is being used to create new access to care in a field where human resources can't keep up with demand. That's where the founders of MindEasy thought they could make a difference. I sat down with two of MindEasy's co-founders, Dahlia Ahmed and Akanksha Shellett, to talk about their app and the expanding role of technology in mental health. I'm Dahlia. I am the co-founder and chief clinical officer at MindEasy. My background is in the clinical space, so I'm a registered psychotherapist qualifying and I'm Akanksha Shalit. I'm one of the three co-founders at MindEasy, as well as the CTO. I have two degrees in computer science and cognitive science from the University of Toronto. So I'm a full-stack developer. Along with Alexandra Suad, Dahlia and Akanksha developed MindEasy to address poor availability of mental health services and the lack of personalized, culturally appropriate mental health care. The two areas that we focus on is one, understanding that there isn't enough human capital in the world to really target every single demographic and every single identity that we want to focus on. And the other aspect is in the current mental health industry and the way most people understand it, it is very much you're either in therapy or you're not in therapy. There's no in-between. And so we use digital avatars that look like you, speak like you, sound like you, the idea is that the avatar can help users feel a sense of comfort that they may not get with a therapist who doesn't share their cultural background. You know, all the clinicians that they're going through, they look different from them. And having to go through that whole process of, I'm already dealing with stress, and now it's still my job to educate you and to understand what I'm going through. So we take all of that out and we deliver all of our resources through uh, human-like avatars. MindEasy's founders were all international students living in Canada, which informed their approach to the app. 
I'm originally from India, raised in the Middle East. Dahlia's originally from Yemen, uh, raised in the Middle East. Our third co-founder, Alexandra, she's from originally from Lebanon. And so while we were dealing with the pandemic together, I think there was a sense from all of us where we recognized that in this space, there wasn't as much information and resources that were directed specifically for minority groups. You hear a lot of people being in therapy. You hear a lot of people, you know, trying really hard to find the right clinician to get to, but no one really addresses this area of, well, people are different and people from different parts of the world experience these stressors differently. In some ways, this was a very personal endeavor. You know, I'm from Yemen. There's war in Yemen. It's kind of just being able to process all of that. There are therapists who are very knowledgeable about this. They live in Detroit. (laughs) I lived in Toronto, for example, and I wasn't able to access that therapy. I wasn't able to get that validation or the acknowledgement or the potential specific interventions that could speak to my identity. It was too far. There were all these like barriers in place. A report from 2019 by the Mental Health Commission of Canada says that immigrants, refugee, ethnocultural, and racialized populations are less likely to seek mental health treatment than other Canadians, and more likely to use emergency rooms if their mental health challenges reach a breaking point. The reasons for this divide include language barriers, limited access to services, fear, and stigma. The report also says, quote, In many cases, mainstream mental health care is inconsistent with the values, expectations, and patterns of immigrants and refugee populations. End quote. Back to Akongcha. It's not like other cultures and places don't practice psychotherapy. You know, if you go to East Asia, they have a version. If you go to South Asia, there's another version. Like, I think in North America, we sometimes have that perspective that, you know, the way we do it is the way that works. And... That's not necessarily true. And so what we've done is we've built a network of over 70 different experts that we work with globally. These are experts that have actually spent their whole lives in that demographic, learning from that demographic, not just, oh, this is what's prevalent, but this is how how they see mental health, whether that's the language that they use around mental health or what are some interventions that actually work in those spaces. Research supports the thesis that there is a gap that needs to be closed between the needs of culturally diverse populations and culturally specific mental health care. For example, Toronto Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, otherwise known as CAMH, notes that South Asians have relatively high rates of anxiety and mood disorders, but they are 85% less likely to seek treatment for those challenges when compared to other Canadians. CAMH has found that using culturally informed approaches to therapy, which they call culturally adapted CBT, have more positive results than traditional CBT. Working and studying in the psychotherapy field, Dahlia saw this type of groundbreaking work being done. Coming across culturally adapted resources has been kind of a mind-blowing experience where I was like, whoa, like, why do we not have this everywhere? Why... Like, this is why people don't access therapies, because they don't get resources that speak to them in the way that they understand and communicate and live life. Maybe there is a way to make scalable change through this approach in a way where you can include, you know, diversity, you can include different voices, and you can make it a collective efficacy approach 
that could really serve a diverse set of people. So I, I know AI has kind of been having its moment. To some degree, it's almost become a meme. But I have seen in a couple of your published interviews that you have talked about AI and kind of it having a role in all of this. Maybe you could explain a bit about that. Yeah. So when people think of AI now, I think the, their mind jumps to ChatGPT and, you know, some of the trends that they're seeing. But almost every single thing that we use does have some form of AI in it. One is obviously the avatars itself. There's a lot of tracking that happens behind the scenes. So there is a mechanism that assesses, okay, this person's at this stage, or this is how they need to be prompted. Um, so there's some assessment that happens there. We do want to expand that more and more as we go forward. But when we initially started, that was pre-ChatGPT boom. So we are now working towards incorporating a lot more of it, except, you know, we, we also want to be careful in how we incorporate it. You might have seen there's actually quite a boom in like chatbots that are like mental health companions and mental health coaches or whatever. And it's actually very easy to break those. It's very, very easy to say something inappropriate and have it say something inappropriate back to you. So we're working towards, you know, how do we work with some of these giant models of language and how do we incorporate not just language itself, which it's getting better and better at doing. For example, if you spoke to ChatGPT in Hindi, for example, it's actually going to respond to you in Hindi, but it doesn't have any of the clinical information behind it to give you something that's clinically helpful as opposed to just saying, oh, you're not feeling well. Okay, great. Go on a walk. You know, that's the extent of its knowledge. Yeah, I think that AI has been really helpful in making a scalable solution as well. We have been able to also provide resources in the Middle East, you know, after times that might have been crisis where, you know, there are no clinicians available or there might not be resources to the traditional maybe community center for that education. And so this is where I see that the scalability is really, really helpful. Like I grew up in the Middle East where the topic of mental health was taboo. Like I was studying psychology and people, would, they would laugh and be like, well, you're not going to have a job. And so now being able to say, hey, look, we can actually provide something that still can be, people can watch it, you know, privately in their homes this can be something that has been really, really amazing. And I'm not from the tech space, so I've just been super mind blown by all the things that, you know, the accessibility that has been made possible by it. So it sounds like you put a lot of effort into making sure that this is grounded in things that work and reaching out to humans who are interacting. But one of the promises of AI is obviously the scalability that you talked about. And so we now have generative AI that is so good at convincing us that it's a human that sometimes we just walk away and do what it tells us because we assume that it must know what it's talking about. It's AI, right? Yeah. And I think with the advances in generative images and video, you know, increasingly it's going to be much more difficult to tell. Is this a person? Is there a person behind this machine? Or is it just the machine? From both your viewpoints in the space, where do you think this all can go horribly wrong? It's really funny you ask that because I don't know if it's just because I'm a cynical person in general, but I feel like out of the three of us, I've always been the one that's like overly careful about, you know, even when we saw some of the other trends come up in Web3 and some of the other AI transformations that have happened even in like the last two, three years, I've always been the person going, mm, that sounds iffy. Like, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> we have seen some of these like AI assistants and chatbots not have the capacity for, forget empathy. I mean, that's a different conversation too, but just even that sense of 
just because someone says they want to do something harmful to themselves and maybe they can rationalize their own conversation with you doesn't mean they should do something harmful to themselves, right? And we as humans can say, no, don't harm yourself, but it becomes really easy for us to convince the the machine that I'm doing this because I have these three logical reasons why I want to within the machine to go, yeah, you're right, do it. And it's such a scary thought that it can go in that extreme direction. And that's what we always think of, I think, as you know, entrepreneurs in the space for mental health and in the space of AI. It's our job, quite literally, to think of the worst case scenarios and go, okay, how do we prevent that? How do we not go down that slippery slide? And the one thing that I think keeps us motivated enough to stay in the space is this change is happening, whether or not we're a part of it. We're not trying to replace therapy. I don't think we're ever going to replace therapy. I think it's important to have therapists, but to optimize their resources. And then the other piece is the data that's out there is not something that we can just very easily trust and use. Just knowing that it's a tool right now that can help us, I think is the best way to look at it. Yeah. And I think we haven't even touched the fact that like on the other technical side, like it's humans dissecting this data and humans are inherently also biased. (laughs) And so, you know, what do we do about that? So I think I think it's just good questions to ask. And I think the more we incorporate it in situations where we can trust that there is a fallback for a clinician or a human to to validate and to understand if this machine and if this AI is doing the right thing, I don't think we're going to be replaced anytime soon. (laughs) Other people have asked the same question. What do we do about bias in the data? One review from 2022 by a research team from CAMH and the University of Toronto found serious limitations in the way race-based data is collected and used for mental health research. The problem isn't just that there isn't enough data. It's also that the methods for measuring are inconsistent. Around a third of the studies they looked at didn't provide clear definitions of race or ethnicity. In addition, marginalized groups, indigenous people in particular, were often excluded entirely from these studies due to the small sample sizes. The review also brings up AI. It reads, Rapid advancements in machine learning make it important to revisit how race or ethnicity are measured and operationalized in mental health research, since biases can be amplified when baked into machine learning data and models. Dr. Nelson Shen is a co-author of that review. And we did our review and we found that you know, even just the way we operationalize the term race in data sets can mean many different things. And, you know, oftentimes it's used as a proxy for discrimination. But I think we need to be very careful about how we structure these data. Dr. Shen is a project scientist at CAMH. He's part of their digital mental health lab, where his research involves engaging clinicians, patients, and others in digital health and AI initiatives. Dr. Shen says that even with the best intentions, promising technology can widen the gap between haves and have-nots. Good intentions are not enough. I mean, my favorite example is the app that I really dislike, but Pokemon Go, it's just because everyone always had their head down. But, you know, Pokemon Go, great intentions. I thought it's transformative in the way that it got people to be active without really thinking about it, right? You got people walking around all city and facing the phone. But what we quickly found was people started calling Pokemon Go racist because all the good Pokemons were in the high density areas, in the urban areas, whereas people in more remote areas or low socioeconomic status areas, 
there were no good Pokemons around. And why was that? It was because they weren't really mindful on how they designed the algorithms. And they used, they used maps from a previous app that was predominantly white, affluent in commercial areas. And that's what happened, right? So a potentially well-intentioned app somehow gets labeled as being racist. But overall, Dr. Shin remains optimistic. There's a lot of stuff going on. People are really excited. You know, this past year with all the generative AI, people are really excited about leveraging AI in healthcare and in all aspects of life, really. He's excited about the ways artificial intelligence can help patients get better access and providers distribute more personalized care. One example is in triaging, the process of deciding the nature and urgency of care each patient needs. Recently, they had a... announcement with Kids Help Phone and collaboration with the Vector Institute here at VOT, where they'll be using AI to really understand who's on the other side of the line by analyzing their voice, their speech patterns, their word choices to provide more personalized and precise services. So if there is something that is a high risk, you know, you can escalate to some crisis responders. Whereas if someone's at low risk, you can have that conversation with a chatbot. New technology has also revolutionized the way that doctors can collect data in real time, using it to predict where a patient's health journey is heading. And then there are possibilities for treatment, helping AI and clinicians to work more seamlessly together. There's kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of standard practice across a lot of the mental health conditions. So there's a lot of guided treatments where AI recommendations are being made in lieu of actually in person. But what we're finding is that you need people to be there as well. You know, as a clinician, like I provide anesthesia, I read through, you know, thousands of pages of medical records every month. It's clear that there's a lot of bias and often inaccuracies within those medical records. Patients are being labeled one thing versus another. And, you know, that really drives the way that you treat and interact with them in the healthcare encounter, you know, you have machine learning models and algorithms trained on this exact same data. How do you think this will affect patients as these learning models continue to mature and become a bigger part of receiving healthcare? I think there needs to be understanding across the board with everyone what this data will do, right? Everyone's starting to understand, you know, if we have data that's not correct or have biases baked into them, you're going to exacerbate inequities that are already there. So if we keep on training and using it, it's a perpetual cycle that's going to continue to exacerbate existing inequities. Also, the data is not complete as well. There are people that are hesitant to engage in this and you know, sometimes at the point of care might not be as forthcoming or might not be willing to share the data in these large data sets. And that poses an issue as well, right? Because if they don't participate, then By trying to protect their own privacy, they may inadvertently also create these inequities based on whatever data we're training the AI. So that is a serious risk. And, you know, I I don't know what the solution is for that. I think we're trying to figure that out right now. Do you have any ideas on how, from your standpoint and experience, we could mitigate this moving forward? Because I know no one solved this problem, but based on what you know, how could we go about solving the problem? The approach we're taking in both from a clinical standpoint and from a patient standpoint, we're doing a lot of engagement work 
you know, across the spectrum, whether it's consultation or getting in there and, you know, co-designing these solutions with people. So some work I've been doing with Canada Health Infoway, we've been doing some pan-Canadian surveys to just kind of gauge what is the temperature on privacy in the public. And we found that, you know, the more you trust in the system, the more you're willing to share your data. And, you know, a lot of that is how do we build trust in the system? Just to touch on that point about trust, if we rely so heavily on trust in the system, what's the unique danger that marginalized communities, you know, equity-deserving communities have? Because trust tends to be lower if you've had bad experiences or less access to healthcare. You know, are we creating a situation where they just continue to be left out? Or, you know, how do, how do we chart our way to a future where we're not worsening inequities? You know, that's where really meaningful engagement is necessary to understand, well, where are you at and how can you bridge that gap that's there? This is obviously a passion of yours. What makes you most excited looking into the future? And the other side of that question, what scares you the most looking in the future if it was to happen? Should I start with the negative or the positive first? <laughs> you know, what scares me the most is still a lot of uncertainty about what AI is and where it's going and, you know, how the public use it. And I think we need to start being more collaborative in how we approach AI. What excites me? So, you know, what got me into health informatics, you know, was this idea of patient empowerment and giving patients the tools they need to feel that they can take better care of themselves. But for me, I'm interested in how AI can be used to help advocate for patients and be a platform for them. So, you know, in mental health, we have our own stories, but oftentimes we don't know how to tell it. So how, how can we use AI to help us tell that story, help us put the right words in there so that we're not discriminated against, but we also have the avenue to share our rich experiences to people so that people don't see us in such a stigmatized light, but really understand what our experiences are. But yeah, those are my, I guess, fears and dreams. <laughs> The inertia against change in medicine can be pretty heavy. History and tradition are as much a part of medical practice as science and humanity. To make this more concrete, major changes in medical practice take 17 years. Every so often, however, overwhelming crisis drives momentum, and things that seem like they'd never change suddenly do. There are a few areas of medicine where the crisis is more severe than that in mental health, and it's going to get worse. Today, 6.7 million Canadians struggle with mental illness, and one in two Canadians will have dealt with a past mental illness by age 40. The consequences of access gaps are dire, whether it's looking at the heavy burden of individual suffering or the ongoing cost to Canadian society as a whole. So what's the future of mental health access in Canada? Will we solve access gaps with technology or replace providers with artificial intelligence? Our guests today leave me with the thought that the future is less likely to be either or, but a new path where we fuse the availability and efficiency of technology with health providers' judgment and humanity. 
Technology won't replace people, but people who don't use technology will likely be replaced by people who do. We really are stepping into the unknown, but for folks struggling with mental illness, we owe them the effort to step through the darkness and find what's on the other side. struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can talk to someone at talksuicide.ca or by calling 1-833-456-4566. We've included some additional resources in the show notes. The Healthcare Divide is brought to you by the Canadian Race Relations Foundation with support from Pfizer Canada. It is produced by Antica Productions and Makwa Creative. Tanya Talaga is the executive producer at Makwa. Jordan Huffman is a consulting producer at Maqua. Antica's executive producers are Stuart Cox and Laura Regeer. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Haley Choi. Additional production assistance from Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Philip Wilson. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Our theme song is by Handsome Tiger. If you like this show, tell a friend about it. We'll be back next Wednesday. Wednesday.